You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Freedom Pact. Okay, joining me on the Freedom Pact podcast today is political commentator and host of the David Pakman Show, David Pakman. David, welcome to the Freedom Pact. Thank you for inviting me. It's my pleasure, sir. And this is primarily a personal development podcast. So I wanted to just start this off with your own personal journey before we get into any of the, the topics that were requested. So would you remember a significant point in your life? Because out of all the political commentators I've spoken to, there seems to be a, a moment in time they can reflect back on where that switch flipped and they became interested in politics. Do you remember that time for yourself? No, really no, because I just grew up around politics. It was always I'm I'm from Argentina and in Argentina, you know, politics is one of the main uh, driving forces of discussion at any kind of friendly or family gathering. So it was always kind of in the ether, so to speak. Uh, but I do think that the 2000 presidential election, the results of which were not known for some time because of the the um, uh, involvement of the Supreme Court as a result of what happened in Florida with Bush v. Gore. I, I remember that being a moment where I had sort of followed the election from day one and was more closely involved, I would say. I read an interview with yourself online where you said that you always knew that you wanted to go down the sort of entrepreneurial route or you know, being your own boss. What was it about that lifestyle that you gravitated towards so much? Well, it was more what repelled me from the alternative. And, you know, I worked a, a number of jobs growing up and I never liked um, I never liked having a boss. I never liked having a set schedule. I didn't like most corporate culture. And a lot of this was before the kind of modern tech companies where maybe I would like the culture more. I don't know. I've never tried it, fortunately, and, and maybe I'll be lucky enough never, never to have to. Uh, but it was really about as I started doing this and realizing that this felt like a way to much more directly determine my fate and determine what my days would look like. And it doesn't mean it was less work. In fact, I would argue it's more. I mean, I'm never really done working in the sense that if the website breaks whenever or if whatever happens, I'm sort of always on in a sense. That's the downside to it. But the upsides are so significant for me that at this point, I I, th I consider myself almost broken in terms of being able to work like a normal job. I don't think I could do the thing where, you know, David, we start at 915 here and I noticed that it was 945 when you got here. And I, I, I really would would have a difficult time with that. And I get that it's very privileged and I'm fortunate to be able to be in that position today. Yeah, I think most entrepreneurs I speak to, they talk about that sort of five for two trade off where people give five days of their life to uh, to build in someone else's dream to then get two days back on the weekend where they can actually enjoy it. And, you know, there's that old saying that if you love what you do, you'll never really work a day in your life. Is your Monday to Friday a similar feeling to your Saturday and Sunday? 
No, it's really not. I mean, one of the things that I noticed early was that this world of news and politics, particularly when it's so online based and the platforms that I publish my content to, it's one of the most toxic things I can imagine for sort of like a um, uh, someone living in a developed country. Right. I mean, I'm not saying that this is like uh, hunger, not having enough to eat or anything like that. I'm not it, it, suggesting that. But in terms of the culture, some of the most toxic cultural stuff is following news and politics, particularly through an online space. So we condense our five episodes into four days a week of filming. And I'd really try to completely tune out as much as is possible news and politics for close to three full days a week. Now, as we get closer to elections, it's not really practical and there's more and more weekend rallies and things like this. But I try to create a good line between my my working days and my my off days doesn't mean I'm not doing work, but it's more business strategy and, and accounting type stuff than it is the news and politics. Yeah, that's really interesting because I'm certainly no political commentator. I have a, you know, a, an interest in politics. Maybe you could say that, but certainly not, you know, an intense interest. And I remember there was a brief period of time where I, you know, I was I was watching all these political commentators trying to take in as much info from all over the spectrum as I could. And I remember I, I probably spent about three weeks where I would, you know, tune into these programs every day. And by the end of the three weeks, I remember thinking, I can't digest any of this stuff anymore it's, it's dragging me down so how do you combat that sort of political burnout that you get when you're just always looking at news and, and different perspectives it, it is quite draining i found i would say three things i mean one is what i already mentioned which is this should be something you're deliberately taking time off from so that would be the first thing i would say the second thing would be I would really try to skew my focus towards things where I might be able to have an impact or do something because feeling like you can't, you know, one of the things in jobs that seems to make people have low job satisfaction is feeling like you have no control over the circumstances. And I would apply the same idea to the news that we consume. So whether that means focusing locally or focusing on a particular issue that you might be able to do something about, I think that that's an important thing. Um, and then number three, it's it's also filling your life with other things altogether um, that that don't relate to the news and politics of the day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if you Google yourself, it comes up David Pakman, progressive political commentator. And I think that's a word that probably means different things to different people. What does the word progressive mean to David Pakman? Quite simply, if the question is, what is the political ideology that's associated with that term? It's really, uh, for me, like social democracy, the northern European sort of model where we're talking about a capitalist system. We're still talking about markets, at least in theory, being able to direct resources in most but not all areas. You know, I would choose some areas and take them out of that healthcare, for example, public education. Uh, police and fire, et cetera. Um, but for the most part, we're talking about a well-regulated capitalist system that says we want to allow people's ingenuity and creativity and entrepreneurship to uh, benefit them. But at the very, very top, we want to use taxation to ensure that also at the very bottom, no one falls below a certain standard of living that we can easily guarantee right now. For me, that's that's the very, very general perspective. Mm, yeah. And so I, I mentioned I've, sp I've spoken to a number of, of political commentators. This isn't a political show, but I, I just so happen to have those conversations. And 
I personally, when I, I don't do so much of these conversations anymore, but when I was, I, I tried my best to try and speak to those across the spectrum. I didn't want to just go down one route. I wanted to try and take in as much perspective and, and information as I could. Um, and I found that, you know, if I was speaking to someone with a, you know, a certain ideology that I would get comments from some people saying, how could you speak to that person? How could you give them a platform? They're this, they're that. And even though I didn't agree with, uh, explicitly say I agreed with anything they said, then sort of I was tarnished with the same brush. And so my question to you would be, do you think it's important to speak to people from all over the spectrum if possible? Or do you think someone like myself, and you can be honest, that I have a bigger responsibility to monitor the conversations I'm having? Where do you sit on that? Well, generally speaking, you know, it's very easy to say, hey, uh, diversity of opinions and uh, talking to different people is good. You know, it's very easy. It's, it's almost meaningless because very few people would say, no, you should only speak to people who only have your existing ideas. Of course, that that's that's a great thing. I think, you know, the term I generally apply to this is responsible platforming. And so when I do an interview with an extremist of some kind, you know, I've interviewed white nationalists and homophobes and the the whole thing. My approach is sort of twofold. The first is, are their ideas catching on enough that they're worth refuting and challenging? Because I don't find particular value in finding some completely obscure, you know, imagine a conspiracy theorist whose conspiracy is just to pick something that there's an invisible, weightless, purple elephant in every grocery store. There's no point that that's not really interesting to me. That's not a movement that's building behind it. Fine. You know, that that I would ignore. But if there's a movement that is gaining some traction, I want to first say, well, should it be refuted or at least challenged? And the second part is, am I equipped to actually do it? Because what I don't want to do is provide sort of a free platform for propagandizing. Now, sometimes a technique is to give people the rope with which to hang themselves. That's a decision that's made in individual conversations. But I want to be able to responsibly platform these people early on. I would sometimes get disagreement in my audience. Why did you give this person a platform? And the idea was, well, these ideas are are getting enough attention that I think they're worth refuting. So generally speaking, great conversation. That's fantastic. Do it responsibly. Make sure you're equipped to do it. And the last part I would put, uh, uh, the last piece of this that, that I might add is it's okay to find some folks that are so far gone that it's not actually worth engaging with them. I think that that's okay. That that can be a realistic thing. At a certain point, great. We've heard the theory that Donald Trump actually won the election when he lost. We've heard 50 different arguments which conflict among themselves and could, you know, it's incoherent. We kind of get it. How much more of that are we really going to do? I think it's okay at a certain point to say we're moving on to other things. I think this is a, a question that's going to have a, you know a different answer for everybody, and so rightly so. But are you the type of person where your friends tend to align with your beliefs and ideologies, or do you maybe have friends from across the political spectrum? Well, there's a couple of answers to that. I mean, if we're talking about my closest friends, it's it's people I grew up with. And, you know, 
I grew up in Massachusetts and then moved to New York City, which are liberal, right? So just by virtue of geography, I'm a la around a lot of left-wing people. So in a sense, there's definitely a skew there. I don't, my friends are not 50-50 right-wingers and left-wingers. Within that, though, there's definitely a variety of opinions. I have you know, very anti-firearm friends and many friends who are firearms owners, for example. Or I have friends who differ as to what level of taxation they think is appropriate. What I don't have is sort of virulently homophobic, transphobic, anti-Semitic friends, because that that to me feels sort of over a certain line where there's probably not a cultural fit here in in many ways. Something interesting I saw a couple of weeks back, um, these conversations difference in, in, in opinion. I, I saw your, your appearance on trigonometry and um, in a, I think it was called a, a good faith discussion. And then <laughs> a couple of days later, I saw, um, I think you made a video and then the trigonometry guys made a reaction video. What sort of happened there? Was there a, was there a disconnect? What sort of broke down? I, I don't know. Um, my uh, I don't know what their video said. I haven't seen their video. I'm aware they made one, but I just have there's so many reaction videos done to my content that I, I can't watch all of them. So I'm guessing from what I saw on Twitter, I guess they felt that me saying that they were right wingers in the title of my video was a smear. Now, I don't use right winger as a smear. My understanding was that they were right wingers. My experience was that in the moments before our interview, they said we're right wing, but we're not right wing nuts. And then after the fact, I guess one or both of them said they're actually centrists or something. I, I don't know, but I'm to my my understanding, having just seen two tweets was that they felt the use of the term right winger was a smear and inaccurate. But beyond that, I'm not really sure. And what would your advice be to, to people out there about to engage in a debate or discussion with someone who has very different beliefs to themselves. Do you think there are any, you know, values or, or things that people should be mindful of when having those conversations? Well, I think it's important to understand. Not ideally going in, you would know not only what are the beliefs of the people you're going to be talking to, but why do they believe those things? So if you were going into a debate about healthcare, for example, and you know you're going to be debating someone who's against uh, government involvement in healthcare. It would be good to know why they're against it. You know, they believe that government doesn't do things well, for example, or that it's communist and socialist, which it's of course it's not. But it would be good to know whether that's their belief. I, I think that that's important. I mean, it's similar to when I host some kind of extremist on my show. I want to have a sense of what are their beliefs. I do also think it's. You know, not not in the sense of tone policing, but it might be good to know whether there are certain words or phrases that might uh, be triggering to, to the people you're talking to. I found out oh, this happened a very long time ago, but in some kind of a discussion, I don't remember the details exactly, but with a discussion with some religious right person, um, I referred to what I now understand is the belief of a certain wafer being the literal body of Christ as a cracker. You know, like in the US, we call these these are, you know, crackers. It's sort of uh, I don't know if it's the same the, the same word everywhere, but it's a piece of food, you know, a wafer of sorts or. yeah. And I later was told that it's for people who believe that's literally the body of their God, that it's offensive to call it 
a cracker. And so I didn't know that at the time. To me, it was like that. That's a, it looks like a cracker to me. I see people eating a cracker. And, and so it wasn't that I it's not that it changes my belief in the underlying thing, but it's useful to know whether such a phrase might be triggering to the person you're talking to. Mm. Yeah, this this sort of political divide between people and I, I may not be right here again. I'm, I'm not too into this space as, as yourself, but from over here in, in the UK, um, yeah, there, there is a political divide, but I, I feel as though it may not be as tribal as it seems in the US. It seems very tribal in, in that there seems to be a maybe more so from one side than the other, but a, a lack of desire to debate or have a civilized discussion. It's almost, you know, that side is, you know, if that makes sense that they, what's the word I may be looking for here? It seems to be quite a black and white, almost right and wrong. And the left and the right seem to be at an almost an internal conflict, which I don't really see that happening in the UK as much. But my question would be, why is America so divided? Well, unfortunately, you, if you ask 10 different people, you'll get 10 dramatically different answers to that question. I think there's a number of answers and some of them are not particularly palatable to lots of folks. Like one of the things I said on the trigonometry interview was that we do have a problem in the United States where a lot of people, I believe on the American right, as a result of believing that education is a form of liberal indoctrination, being distrustful of empiricism, science, teachers, etc., are quite literally less educated on the facts. And when you don't have a shared understanding of what the basic facts are, we can come to different conclusions. We can layer different morality on top of the facts. But if we can't even agree on very basic facts, it's really difficult to have a useful conversation. I'm talking really simple things like do vaccines cause autism? Um, who won the, the election in 2020? Uh, really just sim you know, simple stuff. When you lack that shared understanding, it's hard to have the good faith conversations where I do think in other countries there is so, not in every country. I mean, in Argentina, there's a lot of lack of factual basis as well. But when you at least start with an understanding of, a, of the factual basis, the disagreements become much more productive in my mind. So I think that's one aspect. And it has to do with lack of, of funding for education. The Republican Party doesn't really like public education. Some want to eliminate the Department of Education, go in the charter and private and homeschooling model. This stuff has a real impact. So that's kind of like one piece. The media environment is very, very disturbed uh, from the standpoint of uh, online news, algorithms, amplification of, of, of uh, untrue reports and conspiratorial reporting. I think that's a big part of it as well. But then also kind of less part in, in a, everything I've said so far, many will say that's incredibly partisan, David. And it isn't because I think that the split is quite partisan. We also have such a large country with such cultural differences. I not long ago spent time in rural northern Indiana, which for people not in the U.S. may or may not know is a very conservative area and it is a very rural area. And, and all you really have in terms of community centers are gun ranges and evangelical, evangelical churches. It makes sense that if that's your environment for your first 18 years, you will have a very different perspective when you are old enough to vote than someone who grows up in San Francisco, for example. So that's more of a geographic reality. And I could go on. I mean, there's so many different things happening. 
Yeah, it was interesting you said about who is the president. I, I saw a, a clip on your Instagram the other day where I can't remember the gentleman's name, but you asked him who won the, the presidential election. He said, well, it's a it's a tricky question or it's a funny <laughs> <Yeah>. question. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that how how are we going to really have a conversation? How are we going to solve any problems when that is not even something we can all agree? Like, OK, Joe Biden won and you might not like it. It's OK, but that's the person that won. It's very hard to have a conversation. What needs to happen for sort of America to to pull back and this divide maybe to get a little bit closer? I don't know. You know, there's lots of, of contingents that will give you a very simple answer. Like, for example, there are some now on the right who are saying the solution to just about every problem. They see the fact that abortion is legal as a problem. They see the fact that there are mass shootings as a problem, which so do I. But they will say the solution to all of these problems is you need more God. You need more faith, religious faith. You need prayer in school that, that they say that's the solution. I don't think that that's the solution. Um, in fact, you look at other countries that don't have a lot of the problems we have. They have much lower belief in God. So it seems like there's a very clear counterfactual there. Um, I, I do think that I mean, this is maybe a little too narrow for our conversation, but I think that not just education, but really specifically we should be teaching critical thinking and media literacy starting somewhere between age 10 and 12 in every school. And there are lots of people on the political right who have fought that. They call it a form of indoctrination by the left. I call it the tools to think for oneself. And I believe that if we did that, I mean, it would take a generation, right? That's the problem. It takes a while for this stuff to have an impact. A lot of these problems would sort themselves out in that people would never fall for many of the things they they fall for today. Mm. So going back to maybe something we touched on earlier. Um, so recently I actually went to I don't know how familiar you are with British politics, but I recently traveled up to Westminster where I did an in-person sit down interview with the, the former health secretary to the UK, Matt Hancock. Um, and, you know, that was a, a convert, you know, this is a man who was instrumental in the UK lockdowns, uh, the vaccination program, and he's been a part of the, the Tory cabinet for years now. Um, and he was recently dismissed for some um, for some scandal. But I had that conversation, I remember, we, we went up, we were, we were going to Parliament, it was all quite exciting. I was really excited and, and felt optimistic. I had the chat and then it was quite a long drive back home to Wales, where I'm from. And I remember we had almost had this sort of adrenaline dump where I just the conversation left me feeling a bit a bit sad, a bit drained. <laughs> and I was thinking, oh, that wasn't really what I thought it was going to do for me on a personal level. And then a day later, I had a completely different type of interview. I, I interviewed Neil deGrasse Tyson about, you know, space and astronomy. And I remember coming away from that and fe I felt the opposite. I felt energized. I felt you know, I felt good. And so my question would be, is it possible to be immersed in politics and be truly happy at the same time? As a, as an observer or as a participant? As an observer. Oh, oh, yeah. I Yes, I think so. I think so. I mean, again, I think if you have the right mix of things you're paying attention to, if you are, uh, I mean, you know, one of the things I try to do is I, I try to read a lot. And usually the first thing I do in the morning is I will read. If I have some free time during the day, I will read in the evenings. I will read. And because I'm not reading any politics, I'm reading science, I'm reading history, I'm reading narrative nonfiction and business books and all these different things. 
it's much easier to kind of have a mix of things swirling around in your head. I know friends who get so sucked in to a particular news story, it completely takes over and it's natural to be pessimistic in that sense. But I do think there are things to be optimistic about. And what's interesting about your example is one of the things I would like to see in American politics, and it may apply elsewhere as well, is folks from more diverse backgrounds getting involved in politics. The cynical perspective would be if Neil deGrasse Tyson became an elected official, he would become just like them, right? My view is different, which is if we had more people with Neil deGrasse Tyson's background in politics, it would actually dramatically improve things. You know, one example is there's a congressman in the US named Jamie Raskin, who is from Maryland. He's truly like a progressive activist. If you go and you look at his record when he was in the Maryland State House and et cetera, this is a guy who has achieved meaningful change and has proposed meaningful bills. He's really done things that are helping people rather than just being kind of in this bogged down obstructionist perspective. So I think there's a there's a lot there, but I do think it's possible to follow what's going on in the world and to remain optimistic. Mm, yeah, just on that thread there of, of, of my story of parliament, obviously recently in the UK, our, our prime minister Boris Johnson has been caught up in quite a lot of scandal. I mean, it's, it's undeniable now that there is evidence that he, you know, he attended many uh, parties that were technically illegal at the time. And you feel as though that would really be enough for him to be removed from that position of, you know, the person making these laws and then actively breaking them quite, you know, in, in such a manner. But that just seems to be swept under the rug and we move on to the next thing. And it's, why is it that, that these things can go unpunished? Why do these things tend to just slip through? And, and is there any hope anymore that something like that could actually have repercussions or are we just sort of powerless in that regard? Well, it only will have repercussions if the people truly care. Now, what is the people? Well, the people could be a number of different things. It could be the institutions put in place to hold others accountable. It could be voters in saying, well, this is over the line, but there, there's been this normalization of things that in the past would be just flatly unacceptable. I mean, if you go back here in the United States to the Donald Trump primary of 2016, when this Access Hollywood tape came out where Donald Trump was recorded saying, you know, when you're famous, you can do whatever you want, you can grab them by the you know what. The initial reaction for many was this is it, this is over. But then the voters didn't care. And if there's no one de determined to hold you accountable, then it doesn't really matter. You know, we had similar things here in the United States where Republicans and Democrats alike, including, you know, you had entire states disregarding what were supposed to be the protocols. You had individual elected officials like uh, Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, getting some haircut when you weren't supposed to go get a haircut. I don't know. Or Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, having a similar party, I think, at an expensive restaurant. You know, it, it's uh, at, at th things have changed so much where events that previously would be sort of one's death knell no longer are. And it's really just a reflection of the of the circumstances with Trump. I mean, it was every three days there was what in the past would be a major scandal, you know, uh, drawing on a weather map with a Sharpie and saying this is the real path of the hurricane. And then going to Puerto Rico after a hurricane and shooting rolls of paper towels, you know, blithely like basketballs and then uh, flushing documents down the toilet and then stealing documents. And then, you know, I mean, any one of these things at some point would have would have ended your political career. But if there's no one willing or determined to hold you accountable, it doesn't really matter.
So as I mentioned at the top, this is a personal development podcast and and how I managed to get into these conversations of, of politics, especially going back a year ago where I did a few of them, I, I don't really know. But what I have noticed is there seems to be a lot of money in politics, right? There's a lot of clicks in politics. I could put out an episode with, you know, a an Oxford professor on philosophy and it'll it'll do okay, but then I'll do a political episode with all these buzz and, and these themes in it off the charts. And I know from my own experience, and I'll hold my hands up, I, I've not been perfect. I've almost thought sometimes of certain videos I could put out that I know would do well, but and there are a lot of episodes I've recorded that I've never released because I know they would do well, but I just don't feel right putting them out. Oh boy, um, I hope this isn't one of them. <laughs> but what I'm getting to is this, and one of the things I noticed there seems to be a lot of money in, and this is why I think that we see all these great academics being drawn into this game of, you won't believe what the woke have done now. Like, how could the, look how woke this is. There seems to be so much money, clicks, viral opportunity in that. Why is this, you won't believe what the woke have done? Why is that such a, a big money maker that I, I seem to have noticed. Well, you'd have to ask either the people producing or watching the anti-woke stuff. I'm in neither camp, so it's hard for me to speak to that. What I will say is there are areas that are much more uh, click worthy. Like, for example, this Amber Heard Johnny Depp trial in the United States, which it's, it's overwhelmingly non-political uh, streamers and audiences that are watching and producing it. I've done a little bit of streaming of it when I kind of am curious as to what's going on. But the audience that that has garnered is orders of magnitude bigger than any of the of the political stuff. So I think there's still way bigger areas, if you know, low hanging fruit, so to speak. Uh, but I do think that a lot of the framing w without being as familiar with the anti woke content as, as maybe you are. Um, I do think that any time that you can frame an issue as these people are doing something terrible, that's inherently interesting to different factions. And sometimes these people really are doing something terrible and sometimes it's not so terrible. And we all do that sort of content because People do do bad things in, in, in the world. And, and so covering that is legitimate. Um, but I don't think it's anything. I mean, salacious stuff does well generally. I don't think it's just in the online politics space. Hmm. Yeah. And, and for me, I think it's, it's quite sad sometimes when I see, you know, uh, really great professors who have a lot of value to give in their subject, maybe a psychology, psychiatry, philosophy, that seem to just come over and get drawn into this game of politics where I'm not sure what the motivation is. Maybe it does irk them. Maybe they realize that there's a, a, a different avenue in there. I don't know. But it, it does make me sad sometimes when we see what I consider to be great minds in their own field and we're just bogging them down or they bog themselves down with these questions that really have no meaning. Yeah, I'd be curious who you're thinking of. I, I, I mean, there's a lot of people I think that have have given that a shot, and to different degrees of success for sure. But uh, it's certainly a phenomenon that I, I am agree in agreement is a real one. Yeah, for sure. And you know, I, I don't want to name names too much because you know some of these people I know. But I'll give you one example. I, I when I was younger, I, I read. Um, 
Maps of Meaning by Jordan Peterson. And, and I thought that was great content for what it was. And I really do enjoy Jordan Peterson's lectures, you know, on psychology, on, on meaning, his sort of biblical series that you can take value out of, not from a religious point of view for myself, but there is value in it. I've read 12 Rules for Life. I've read Beyond Order. And I, I do enjoy his lectures. But sometimes I'll go on Twitter and I'll, I'll maybe see Jordan re, you know, reply to something about a certain topic and I'll think, come on, you know, like I, I'm I guessing don't... you weren't thrilled with his opinion of how attractive a heavier soup, uh, um, a swimsuit model was on the cover of Sports Illustrated. You didn't necessarily think that was his peak, I think, is what I'm hearing from you. Yeah, like that didn't really that didn't really do much for me. I remember I, I remember when I when I saw it and I thought, what 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 sort of disappointed me about that more so than anything was that no one really asked the question. There wasn't, it wasn't, <laughs> right. it, it People wasn't. People weren't clamoring for Jordan's opinion about that yeah, woman. Yeah, yeah. And there no, wasn't, there wasn't, it wasn't retweeting something that said, wow, look how beautiful this woman is. It was literally, I think, just a photo um, that really didn't, you know, maybe didn't need to be commented on or, or no one asked the question. And, yeah. and that is it because it is a shame because I love, you know, I, I have a lot of respect for, for Jordan and, and his, I've had his wife, Tammy Peterson, on this podcast and it was an incredible conversation. We talked about meaning. We talked about all these all these values and it was, and that was one of my favorite episodes I've ever done. There's mm. no politics in it, but I really enjoyed it. And yeah, it is sad when you see what I consider to be great minds get drawn into this game of politics. Well, I, I agree with you about the example. You know, we have different perspectives about Peterson, which are neither here nor there. But yeah, no, I agree with you. There are it, it's it's happening a lot that folks are sort of tainting their own um, public perception or public standing by jumping into issues where maybe we didn't need to know their opinions. That's absolutely fair. Yeah, and, and you know, not to, to to keep sort of going at certain names, and I'm, I'm certainly not having a, having, a, having a go at anyone right now, but. I think a big one for me as well um, over the last few years, if you go back to myself, a young guy in university, I used to really love the Joe Rogan experience. I would mm. tune in for, for personal development, mindset, um, health and fitness, all these topics, and I wouldn't miss an episode. When I was in university, I would watch every hour of every episode, and I got a lot of value. And, I, and there are certain things that stay with me now that I learned through that podcast, but I couldn't probably tell you the last time I listened to an episode of Joe Rogan because sometimes I'll tune in and I'll think, oh, you know, it's, it's this political matter again that I don't really get much information from. There's not much substance to it. And it, I don't know when sort of Rogan became the the authority on on everything that is politics and, and, and health. But yeah, it, it is sad to see that, that happening and a lot of people consider sort of Joe Rogan to be one of the most important figures of our time right now. I wonder what your opinion on that would be. Well, I, I, you know, I know Joe a little bit. I've been on his program twice. I agree with you that some of the most interesting interviews I've ever seen have happened on Rogan's program uh, without without a doubt. And, um, uh, you know, I, I, I one of one example is when he had Michael Pollan on after Michael Pollan wrote uh, This Is Your Brain on Plants, which is a fascinating, fascinating book. That's an incredible that's really an incredible conversation and sort of the curiosity that Rogan brings to it. And and uh, I mean, it's, it's just fantastic. It's it's unbridled. It's fantastic. No caveats, you know, 
And then all the COVID stuff and then some of the trans stuff and all these different things where it's like, I, I it's it has been disappointing and I have not shied away from criticizing that the Rogan podcast when it when I feel it deserves criticism. It's a very, very mixed bag for sure. For sure, for sure. And um, just as we start to to wind down, let, let's get into some other questions before we go that people have, when I mentioned on our newsletter, you were coming on that these were topics that were given to me. Um, let's see if I can find a few here. There was a tweet I actually enjoyed that will set this one up. You said that um, they say not to politicize mass shootings, but also don't want them studied as a public health matter. In what category should mass, mass shootings exist? And this was one of the topics that we were asked to ask you about is this sort of school shooting gun control and you touched on earlier where you say a lot of people think that we need more prey well i think the main argument from the other side would be that there needs to be more gun control um i'm maybe not going to ask you your opinion on that so much but what other areas do you think that we could look at to combat situations like this because i you know i, I don't want to say that it is the answer but i'm from the uk i i can't really name you a mass shooting we that we've ever had we probably have had a few but certainly none that stick out in my mind and this is a country where it's very illegal to own a gun well listen um the united states of uh western developed nations has the most guns and the highest rate of death from mass shooting so you that's that's correlation okay you still have to look at causation uh, I am more than willing to look at other aspects of this issue. So, for example, when in the last few weeks, the right has been saying this is exclusively an issue of mental health, only nuts would do things like this. Well, it's 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 not exclusively that. But if this is a factor and I concede that to some degree, there is something mentally going on with many of the people willing to do this, although the Buffalo Manifesto was quite cogent fascism, I will say. Yeah. But but putting that aside, if we want to deal with the mental health aspect, I'm all for it. But what that would mean is required mental health screenings initially and periodically for you to have a firearm, actually funding better access to mental health services, which many Republicans who say it's a mental health issue have voted against funding. And number three, generally speaking, if there's so much problem with mental illness, we should try to reduce the ease with which mentally ill people can obtain firearms. So I have no problem dealing with the mental health aspect. Prayer, I don't think is a factor. You know, now there's a lot of talk about doors in schools. The problem isn't guns, but it's how many doors the school building has. Ted Cruz and others have talked about it. It's it's it, it almost sounds hysterical to hear it. I'm fine thinking about the security setup in and around schools. That's great. Most most of the suggestions are either impractical and or also wouldn't apply to other places where we've seen shootings, including movie theaters um, and grocery stores recently, et cetera. So but I'm not saying do not talk about school security. It's fine to talk about school security. Arming teachers seems crazy. Uh, so for me, I think this is you know, there are some maybe on the left who say we shouldn't even talk about any of those things. I'm fine talking about those things in proportion to the degree to which I think they're a problem. But the guns have to be the starting point for the conversation. And I put out a list of 10 different things I would do specifically on gun safety without eliminating the Second Amendment. We, we have a Second Amendment. You can keep it. But I think that that's where you have to start. 
Yeah, and, and again, I, I'll, I'll hold my hands up. I don't really know much about gun control in, in the USA other than from, from what I get on, on TV. But maybe you could enlighten me. If I was an American citizen and I wanted to get hold of a gun, how easy would it be for me to do that? It depends on the state and it depends on um, where you want to obtain the firearm. And so okay. there's no way that I could give you the full patchwork of laws. But there are states which have so-called constitutional carry, which means you don't need a permit or training. You can just basically have a firearm. There are differences between there's kind of sometimes three layers of the ability to purchase a firearm, but you can't carry it with you. Concealed carry. Um, and uh, I forget what the other not con not concealed carry exposed carry. I know that there's another word for it, vi visibly carrying firearms, um, depending on the states. Sometimes there is reciprocity on the permits and sometimes there is not depending on where you go. And if you obtain a firearm from someone you personally know, there might or might not be a background check. Only 22 states and Washington, D.C. require a background check. So it's a patchwork of different laws. It would be shockingly easy for you to get a firearm, generally speaking. Well, I guess the big problem, so to speak, would be how if it is so easy and so many people own them, how would you even begin to 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 recall them? Yeah, well, this is a big thing where Anytime you want to talk about restrictions, people start saying you're confiscating guns like a Nazi. Right. And and the truth is you would put in place a bunch of gun safety regulations. You would probably offer some buybacks where people are paid for firearms that are no longer in compliance that they willingly turn in. And then there would be some time period after which having certain firearms would would become illegal. I mean, it, it it all has to be done thoughtfully and coherently. Um, and unfortunately, it's so polarized that it's hard to really even have these conversations. Mm. Well, thank you for answering and, and that very complex question. And the other topic we were asked most about was, again, we, we talked about these these great minds becoming involved in the world of politics. Obviously, there's this Elon Musk buying buying Twitter, um, which is you, you can't really escape it in the news. A lot of people saying that it is a a triumphant event for free speech. Where do you weigh in on on Elon Musk and his, you know, his uh, pursuit of buying Twitter? Well, when the possibility of him buying Twitter was first announced, I was very skeptical that it would happen. And it does now seem like it's not going to happen. You know, he says that the transaction is on hold. He said a couple of weeks ago because of his lack of belief uh, about the number of fake users. Um, some are saying that it's just a cop out that he never intended to buy it. I don't know, but I was always skeptical that he was really going to buy Twitter. Now, about Elon Musk, I have a sort of um, uh, I don't want to call it an agnostic view on Elon Musk, but I certainly have a view that is very much in the gray area. Uh, I was a relatively early investor in Tesla. I mean, I think I first bought stock like eight years ago. Uh, and I drive a Tesla and I think that they're great vehicles and that the degree to which he has moved forward electric vehicle technology is absolutely to be applauded without question. Betting against Elon Musk on a business level seems to be a bad bet, historically speaking, on the one hand. On the other hand, he's just another person, you know, in the same way that I don't really love the cult of personality around elected officials be it whoever. Sometimes they say things that I agree with or disagree with. Sometimes they say boneheaded things, whatever. 
it's kind of similar to me with Elon Musk. I think he's had a lot of bad takes that he's tweeted about when when he he tweeted this meme whose main point was that the left has become extreme recently, but the right hasn't moved. I think it's just flat out wrong. And it, it's sort of beyond the scope of this answer to delve into that in detail. I just think he's wrong about that. That doesn't mean that Tesla hasn't moved forward electric vehicle technology dramatically. So it, I think the black and white view about Musk, I think he says a lot of dumb things. As you said earlier, he wades into conversations. I'm not even curious what Elon Musk thinks about a lot of these things. And at the same time, we could we can recognize that some of his businesses have done really important things. Well, that's really refreshing to hear, because like I mentioned earlier about, you know, you, you don't have to agree or disagree with everything that one person says to be, you know, to, for, for that to be your opinion on the person. I, you know, I mentioned Jordan Peterson, I am sure because, you know, we have listeners and subscribers who came over to this podcast from. Uh, my episode with with Tammy Peterson that did really well, and I'm sure they're gonna maybe hear one or two of the things I've said today, and they're gonna come at me and maybe unsubscribe for it. That doesn't mean that I'm not a fan of of Jordan Peterson for all the things that sort of brought me to the dance. I still can go back and enjoy that book, and I do have a ticket to to one of his lectures in the UK. And just because I don't agree with his opinion on on politics or or woke, that doesn't mean that I can't appreciate other other parts of him and and his mind so i'm i'm i am really glad that you mentioned that about elon musk because i think that's important for for people to remember before they maybe come for us yeah i mean listen i expect there uh, having looked through some of the interviews you've done and some of the comments i expect that there will be lots of people who will very much disagree with me uh, i would be shocked if people don't comment that uh you know how could you how couldn't you tell that david was being disingenuous and all these different it's every interview i do right i mean it, so that's fine uh, while I disagree with you about your opinion about the value of some of Peterson's stuff, I agree very much with the concept that there's no there, there's no perfect match with any one particular person's views. And so for me, one of the things that does bum me out is when some of our like paid supporters on our membership program will write to me and they'll say, David, you know, I've been with you for years, but I just really disagree with you about, you know, whether a hot dog is a sandwich just to pick something very innocuous. And so I'm I'm withdrawing my support financially. And what bums me out about that is my expectation is never that any two people will agree about everything. At some point, you will find disagreement. But I, I don't want to let the sort of sometimes the term the narcissism of small differences is used cloud that. Maybe you believe that what I do is valuable and that I'm a non-corporate source of commentary, uncontrolled by, you know, a team of editors and all these different things. And we mostly agree. And that's pretty good. Does one disagreement change that? If the one disagreement was me having some horribly racist view, I would I would actually understand that because that's so antithetical to what so many people believe. I would get that. But on something relatively more benign. I think it's reasonable that we're never always going to agree. Yeah, and I, I really appreciate that. You know, as this conversation's gone along, there's been you know things that I've said that you've disagreed with, and probably vice versa. But you know, we're still at the end of this conversation. I think it's it's been conducted in a really friendly manner. I, I think you're a great guy. I can see that myself, and and we're able to have a conversation, and I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And I think that's important for people to understand. I agree. I agree. And again, I understand when people will say. David, you're not friends with any raging anti-Semites for a reason. And I would say that's true. That's true. But 
I'm friends with lots of people with a different opinion about what the top tax rate would be. And we have to be able to kind of draw distinctions about differences versus other differences. So two questions, quick questions that we end every interview. I ask every single guest. The first one, are there any books that have had a massive impact on your life up to this point? Oh, you know, I read so much. It's sort of like, what's your favorite movie to someone who's a film connoisseur? It's it's so difficult to say, uh, but wow, that it, it's just very, very tough. I mean, I'm reading. I think the what I would say is what has added the most value is reading lots of different types of books. And so when it comes to fiction, I'm reading sci fi and I'm reading classics and I'm re- you know, because everything does something different for me. When it comes to nonfiction, I'm reading, you know, Daniel Kahneman's behavioral economics. I'm reading John Krakauer's narrative nonfiction into the air and into th- in, into, uh, you know, the, the two I forget into the wild. I'm reading. Um, I think the, the best recommendation is to be taking in a lot of very different types of books is the best recommendation. I'm not big on political memoirs, me because I'm in politics all the time. So I just I don't read any political memoirs. I don't care about them uh, and I don't do any self help self help stuff either. But beyond that, it's just a, a large breadth of content is the best thing I can say. So the final question for David Pakman right now, what makes life worth living? Well, I am so curious about the future that for me, I am always wondering what is today going to get to next week, next month, next year? I mean, I just have an unending curiosity about what's coming and what's coming is a result of what's happening now. So I think it would be that that general idea that right. What happens in the future will depend on what we are doing right now. And so I'm a part. We're all a part of that and participating. I think it's that general curiosity about the future. Fantastic. And for our listeners and and, uh, people watching right now on YouTube who may not be able to see that big screen behind you that says the David Pakman show, where can our listeners find you and and get more from you and connect with you? We're on almost every platform, but my website, davidpakman.com links out to everything. Amazing. Well, David, thank you so much for your time today and coming on. I've really enjoyed it and I believe it to be a really important conversation and one that I very much appreciate. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Okay, man. Thank you so much.